Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 63 of the show, and it is another good one for you. We have made it to Super Bowl 56. There's lots to discuss there. We'll have a very in-depth preview of the Super Bowl, uh, covering it from all angles. Uh, We'll recap some PGA Tour golf that took place and preview another good tournament this weekend. And then, of course, we'll get you caught up to date in the NHL and the NBA. We had an all-star game in the NHL, and uh, the NBA is approaching their all-star game, so we'll do a standings update there. Lots of trade deadline news to get into there as well and around the island. But, uh, yeah, it's good. another good episode. We'll, we'll start off in the PGA Tour, and this past weekend's tournament was the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, and it was a three-course rotation, okay? Um, they had three courses that they used, of course, Pebble Beach Golf Links. There's a par 72 distance with 6,792 yards. Second course was Spyglass Hill, par 72, distance 7,041 yards. And then the final course was the Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the shore course. That was a par 71 Distance was 6,957 yards. That was probably the easiest course to play out of the three. It was a Thursday through Sunday schedule as normal. Um, Unlike the unusual Wednesday through Saturday tournament we had seen the week before. Now the way that this worked, of course, um, the players rotated through all three courses. So every player played each course once. Then there was a 54-hole cut. So there was a, the cut was after the third round instead of the second round after everybody had played every course. Then the final round was played at Pebble. So those that made the cut played two rounds at Pebble Beach. Had a pretty good field. Uh, we had nine of the top 50 players in the world out there. Uh, Patrick Cantlay, Jason Day, Jordan Spieth, Justin Rose. Uh, Will Zalatoris was scheduled to play, but he had to withdraw due to COVID. And then uh, Daniel Berger also was scheduled to play, but he had to withdraw due to an injury, uh, which made him, uh, he was the defending champion at this, Daniel Berger was, so uh, we did not see a repeat champion. Uh, We hadn't seen one at Pebble in over a decade, but um, there was, celebrities were out in full force. Of course, Jake Owen, Darius Rucker, uh, Mia Hamm, Mookie Betts, Josh Allen, and then the iconic Bill Murray, which uh, he was hilarious. Uh, if you've not seen any highlights of his rounds, uh, he was singing happy birthday to the PGA players on the course. He was singing happy birthday to fans, getting a group of fans to sing happy birthday. Um, he made made a no-look putt, wasn't even looking at it, just swung his putter backwards and it went in the hole. Probably about five or six feet. pretty good little putt uh, for a no-look putt, but he was hilarious. Uh, it was just a good tournament. 
overall. Uh, but in the end, your winner was Tom Hoagie with a score of 19 under par. And this was Tom Hoagie's first career PGA Tour victory in his 203rd start, which is very similarly to what we saw at Torrey Pines the week before with Luke List winning his first PGA Tour event in his 206th start. So very similar uh, winners, back-to-back weeks. Now, Hoagie's 19-under. Um, he came out hot in round one. He shot a 9-under 63 in round one, followed that up with a 69 and 68, and then closed with a 68 on Sunday. Now, this thing was still kind of back and forth. Uh, Jordan Spieth, he finished second at 17-under par, two shots back of Hoagie. And uh, I believe Spieth had the lead or was tied for the lead when he came up to the 17th holes. Par three, hit a beautiful eight iron and uh, left it about three yards short uh, into the bunker instead of bouncing on the green. So uh, if he puts that on the green, this tournament probably ends differently. Uh, but uh, Spieth played a really good round of golf. Uh, after the second round, Spieth was 11 shots off the lead, and then he came out on Saturday and fired a 9-under 63. He had uh, eight birdies, an eagle, and a bogey. So he, he just played a tremendous round of golf, closed with a 3-under 69 on Sunday. Uh, Spieth, is, he's historically played really well at this event. He won it back in 2017, had a top-five finish last year, um, but he looked like he is back in in form after missing the cut there at Torrey Pines. So Hoagie was your winner at 19-under. Spieth solo second at 17-under. Bo Hostler finished solo third at 16-under. Uh, and that was only shooting a 1-under 71 on Sunday, which was his worst of the four rounds that he played. Um, he actually bogeyed 18 to drop down to that 16-under. But nonetheless, uh, he finished at 16-under. There was a two-way tie for fourth at 15-under. That was Troy Merritt and Patrick Cantlay. Now, Cantlay looked like after the third round, like he was in control of this thing just based on the way he'd been playing. I think entering Sunday's final round, uh, he had been 113-under par uh, in his last handful of California events. So uh, he loves him some California golf. He's from there. But he just kind of came out flat there on Sunday, uh, started off okay, and then kind of had a rough patch there in the middle. He only ended up shooting a 71 on Sunday. There was a two-way or three-way tie for sixth at 14 under as Matt Fitzpatrick, Joel Dahman, and Andrew Putnam. So um, Hoagie won this thing by two shots for his first career victory. Uh, it was just, you know, Seamus Power finished tied for ninth at 13-under. He was your 36-hole uh, leader. He had a five-shot lead. He had fired back-to-back 8-under um, 64s in the first two rounds to sit at 16-under heading into round three. This was basically his tournament to lose, and that's exactly what he did because he went two over on Saturday to take himself out, and then he shot even par on Sunday. But it looked for a minute there like Seamus Power was going to win this tournament pretty easily. Uh, but then that Saturday round, but that's, that swing between Spieth's 9-under and Seamus Power's 2-over kind of changed the uh, complexion of how this thing turned out. But all in all, like I said, it was a great tournament. I love the three-course rotation. I think it keeps it interesting, and uh, nobody has an advantage per se. 
Uh, of course, Pebble's one of the most iconic courses out there, so um, that was definitely a fun tournament to watch, especially with all the celebrities out there and whatnot. But this weekend's tournament is the Waste Management Phoenix Open, and that is held at TPC Scottsdale uh, in Arizona. It's a par 71 Distance is 7,261 yards. Now, this tournament is one of the best atmospheres on tour. Okay, last year there was about half capacity, 75% capacity, and the year before that we had zero fans there. Uh, this thing is built on fan attendance, and the uh, it's, it's the stadium course is what it is, TPC Scottsdale Stadium Course, and there's a few whole stretch where the stands, there's grandstands surrounding uh, par three hole and uh, the players actually encourage noise you know right before they tee off get them cheering real loud and it's one of the best atmospheres on tour and, and the players really love it and to make this tournament even better in addition to just the atmosphere uh, of the noise is that this field is absolutely loaded this weekend uh, six of the top 18 ranked golfers in the world are going to be out there including three of the top four players in the world uh, some of the names, John Rahm, Victor Hovland, Patrick Cantlay, who's actually making his debut in this tournament. He's never played here before, but he seems to churn out top tens left and right. Justin Thomas, Xander Shoffley, uh, Matsu, he, uh, Hideki Matsuyama, who won this tournament twice so far, back in 2016 and 2017. Jordan Spieth is playing, and then Brooks Kepka returns to the field this week. He is last year's Waste Management Phoenix Open winner, so he looks to repeat on his title. Uh, Daniel Berger also comes back this week after having to withdraw last week, like we mentioned. So the field is probably one of the better uh, non-World Golf Championship or major championship tournament fields that we'll see. So I would definitely suggest you tune into this if you're a golf fan, uh, especially with uh, crowds getting back to 100% capacity there uh, in Scottsdale. Uh, I can see this thing being uh, every bit as good of a tournament as we could expect. Uh, you know, the scores for the last few tournaments have been, um, you know, around that 16 to 19 under par range, 20 under par. So that's that's probably about where I would expect this thing to land as well, somewhere around 20 under. Uh, but we'll see. TPC Scottsdale, it's a par 71, so there are some gettable holes. Um, that low par, you know, that lower par actually helps with uh, scoring, keeping it keeping it pretty good. But, yeah, definitely I'll be tuned into that this weekend, and uh, if you're a golf fan, I know you will be as well. But we'll move on to the National Football League, and we have made it to Super Bowl 56. We'll do a full preview of that in just a minute. But before we do, this past weekend was the NFL's Pro Bowl, which is their version of the All-Star Game. Friday night was the Skills Showdown. It featured five events. Uh, each conference went against each other in each event, and the winner received one point for the first four events. And then they, the fifth event was the Pro Bowl Dodgeball, where uh, six or seven players from each conference played in a dodgeball match. The winner of that got three points. And whoever had the most points won the skills competition conference-wise. So we started out, we had precision passing. Uh, the NFC won that one thanks to Russell Wilson. Each conference had a quarterback and a non-quarterback throw at targets, some of which were moving, but uh, Russell Wilson dominated that, got the NFC the point there. Uh, 
The thread the needle competition was another passing uh, competition. The AFC was Mac Jones, NFC was Kirk Cousins, and uh, Mac Jones ended up edging out Kirk Cousins in that to give the AFC a point there. The best catch competition featured some high-profile wide receivers, Tyreek Hill, Stephon Diggs, Justin Jefferson, and then defensive back Trayvon Diggs. And Diggs, Trevon Diggs, that is, the defensive player in the competition, he actually won the best catch, which is not surprising. He led the league in interceptions with 11, has yet to drop an interception in his NFL career. So uh, he won the best catch. The fastest man competition had four players. It was uh, Tyreek Hill, Nick Chubb, uh, Micah Parsons, and Trevon Diggs. So two Dallas Cowboys were in there, and the, the guy that won uh, was Micah Parsons, the, the heaviest of – he's 245-pound linebacker, and he ended up winning fastest man uh, over Nick Chubb. Now Tyreek Hill kind of pulled up about halfway through, kind of got a bad start. I don't think it was a fair race. Tyreek Hill really didn't even try, but nonetheless, Parsons was your winner there. And then Pro Bowl dodgeball came down to, to one-on-one, mano-a-mano, And uh, the NFC's Justin Jefferson was the last man standing. He caught an attempt to hit him uh, last pass of the game. So the NFC won Pro Bowl dodgeball to take four of the five events and uh, win the skills competition. And then that brought us to Sunday's Pro Bowl game. Now, I will say this. The Pro Bowl used to be legitimate. Uh, They used to hit, tackle. It was a fun game to watch a true all-star game, it has become kind of a mockery uh, of the NFL. If you watched any of this or if you've seen it, highlights of it, they were legitimately playing two-hand touch football uh, as professional all-stars. And it just, it was very difficult to watch, honestly. Uh, The ref would blow the whistle as soon as the other player got near him. They didn't hit. Uh, There was, uh, you know, a few tackles, so to speak, or whatever, but uh, there wasn't any legitimate big hits or uh, really effort. Uh, that was the main thing is that these guys weren't even really trying. Now, they couldn't. There was no kickoffs, no punts. Uh, you know, they they limited their running plays. I think the NFC had eight rushes for one yard total. The AFC had 21 carries for 52 yards and a touchdown. Um, there just wasn't a whole lot of running plays. There were almost 100 passing plays between the two teams. Uh, NFC had 286 yards passing, four touchdowns. Uh, AFC had 263 yards and three touchdowns through the air. NFC had four interceptions thrown. AFC had three interceptions thrown. It was it was kind of a joke, honestly. Um, I did watch uh, most of the first half. Didn't catch a whole lot of the second half. Uh, I was watching some, some PGA Tour golf there at Pebble Beach, but it uh, the game itself was was pretty much a joke. The AFC won the game forty one to thirty five, uh, so the NFC won the skills comp. AFC won the Pro Bowl, which was actually their fifth Pro Bowl victory in a row, which is a record for the, for most by a conference in a row. So the AFC has not lost a Pro Bowl game in six years. But um, the MVP on the offensive side was. Los Angeles Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert. He went 7 of 11 for 98 yards, two touchdowns, and a pick. And then the defensive MVP was Max Crosby, 
from the Las Vegas Raiders, the defensive end. He had five tackles, three of which were for a loss, and to go with two sacks. All right, and uh, he looked good. He batted down three passes too, all of which were thrown by Kyler Murray. So uh, he was kind of all over the place. Uh, but like I said, just uh, I don't know how the NFL needs to fix the Pro Bowl, but they probably do because they're going to end up losing viewers if it's going to look like that year after year. The skills competition was fun. Uh, the skills showdown, that was fun to watch because that actually showcases their skills in a way. And uh, so that was fun, but the, the game itself was was kind of a mockery. But that brings us to Super Bowl 56, which is going to be at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California, right outside Los Angeles. It is this Sunday, February 13th. It's at 6.30 Eastern, 5.30 Central on NBC. And just to bring you up to speed, I am 8-4 and four in my playoff picks so far this season. I've picked every game on the previous several episodes. And my record in the NFL postseason pick is 8-4. and four. So the Super Bowl matchup is the NFC champion Los Angeles Rams against the AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, the Rams were, a f- well, both of these teams were a four seed entering the playoffs in their conference. So this is the second time in NFL history that uh, a team has played the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Okay, the first time was last year, Tampa Bay. The Buccaneers got to play a Super Bowl at Raymond James Stadium. We went 54 years without a home team uh, playing, or a team playing a home game in the Super Bowl in their own venue. So Super Bowl 55 had happened, and then now it's happened again here in Super Bowl 56. And despite playing at SoFi Stadium, the Rams are actually designated as the road team for this game since that alternates between the AFC and the NFC every year. So the Cincinnati Bengals are going to wear their black jerseys with the white pants, and the Rams are going to wear their uh, cream-colored or bone-colored white jerseys with their matching pants. So uh, those will be the jersey designations. This is actually the first Super Bowl in the last 18 years that has not featured Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, or the San Francisco 49ers. And it's also the first Super Bowl since 2013 without uh, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, or Patrick Mahomes in it. So that's very interesting there. We have um, two fresh teams, um, The Rams were in it a few years ago. We'll talk about that here in a second. And the Bengals haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1999. uh, Or um, 1990, rather. 88, I believe, was the official year. But either way, it's been uh, like 32 years, 33 years since Cincinnati's been to the Super Bowl. Uh, This is the first Super Bowl since 1990 that will not feature either a number one or a number two seed for the conference. Remember, I just said that both teams entered the playoffs as the number four seed. So uh, first time in 32 years, 31 years that uh, we do not have a one or a two seed in there. And then since we just mentioned Tom Brady's not in in the Super Bowl, with without him being there, the streak of 56 consecutive seasons in which uh, the regular season passing leader uh, not making the Super Bowl is still intact. So basically, the regular season passing yards leader has never appeared in the Super Bowl. Um, And since Brady uh, led the league in passing this year in yards, 
Uh, he's not in the Super Bowl, so that streak is is up to 56. Uh, the head coaching matchup, take a look at that real quick. Los Angeles Rams head coach Sean McVay, he's coaching in his second Super Bowl, and he is only 36 years old. Cincinnati Bengals head coach Zach Taylor, he's coaching in his first Super Bowl at 38 years old. So this is the youngest head coaching matchup in Super Bowl history. And the main talk has been around the quarterbacks. It's Joe Burrow and Matthew Stafford. So Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow, he's going to be the seventh quarterback to start in a Super Bowl in either his first or second season. All right, so he's in year two. And so he's the seventh quarterback to do that. He's also looking to become only the third quarterback in NFL history to win both a college national championship and a Super Bowl. He can tie Joe Namath and Joe Montana to do that. And now no quarterback has ever won the Heisman, a national championship, and a Super Bowl. So Joe Burrow can be the first to ever do that. And if he does that this year, Uh, He would have done all of that in just a three-year span, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Heisman in 2019 to go with a national title. Of course, he got hurt last year and then in his first year in the NFL, and then this is his second year. So in a three-year span, he would have won a Heisman, a Natty, and a Super Bowl. So lots on the line there for Joe Burrow. And then on the other side, the Rams quarterback, Matthew Stafford, he's Only the fourth quarterback in the last 40 years to start a Super Bowl in his first season with a new team. Of course, Tom Brady did it last year with Tampa Bay. Jake DeLome did it with the Carolina Panthers in 2003. And Trent Dilfer did it with the Baltimore Ravens back in 2000. So he can join that group, or he is joining that group as well. Now, back to Joe Burrow real quick. He is making his Super Bowl debut in his second season, which is the earliest Super Bowl debut ever for a former number one overall pick. And Matthew Stafford is making his Super Bowl debut this year in his 13th season, which is the latest Super Bowl debut ever for a number one overall pick. So two different paths to get there, but they are both in the big game. Now, the team outlook here for Cincinnati, uh, they went 2-14 and uh, last year, or uh, two years ago, which got them the number one overall pick to get Joe Burrow. And in Joe Burrow's rookie year, they went 4-11-1. So, and then, of course, Burrow got hurt. Uh, so those were their, they went uh, a combined 6-25-1 in their two seasons prior to appearing in the Super Bowl, which is a winning percentage of 2-0-3. With, that's the absolute the lowest winning percentage in NFL history over the two-season span prior to a Super Bowl appearance. So uh, Bengals, not exactly familiar territory for them. Uh, the Carolina Panthers from 01 to 02 had a winning percentage of 250, which was uh, the, you know now the second worst winning percentage in the two seasons prior to the Super Bowl. But um, yeah, this is the Bengals' first Super Bowl appearance since 1988. So that is the official year is 88. And at the beginning of the season, the Bengals, uh, their odds to make the Super Bowl to start the season were 125 to 1, which is the lowest odds ever at the start of a season for a team to actually make the Super Bowl. So the Bengals are making all kinds of history here by reaching the Super Bowl. And uh, it's been so long since they've been in the Super Bowl. They actually only have, the Bengals do, they only have one 
player on their roster that has played in the Super Bowl before, and that's Ricardo Allen, who probably won't play at all or a whole lot, maybe just special teams for the Super Bowl. But um, this is the Los Angeles Rams' second Super Bowl appearance in the last four seasons. Of course, they made it four years ago against New England. Sean McVay was the head coach. Uh, They have some guys on that team still. Uh, Aaron Donald being one of them. And then, of course, they added this season uh, linebacker Vaughn Miller, who was actually the Super Bowl 50 MVP in that game. Uh, had a couple of sacks, a fumble. So uh, they have L.A. comes into this thing with a lot more uh, Super Bowl experience than Cincinnati. And, you know, they took different roads to get here. So Cincinnati, they uh, – they, their road to get to the Super Bowl in the playoffs, they first round, the wild card round, they beat Las Vegas at home. Then the last two games, uh, they went on the road. They beat the Tennessee Titans, and they beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, uh, in Arrowhead, they beat the Chiefs. Uh, so all three of those games by the Bengals were decided by one score, which ties the most one-score victories in a single NFL postseason. So if they win the Super Bowl by one score, that would give them four, which would set a record for the most one-score victories in a single postseason. That's the most you can have. Uh, You can only play maximum of four postseason games, so they would have won all of them by one score. Now, on the Rams' side of things, they in the wild card round, they started off, they they just demolished the Arizona Cardinals uh, at home. Then they traveled to Raymond James Stadium. They took care of business against Tampa Bay. That game was a lot closer than it needed to be. They almost tried to give it away. Uh, they only won. They they did win that one by one score. And then uh, last week against the San Francisco 49ers, that was also a one score game. Uh, they needed a late Matt Gay field goal to beat San Francisco. So those are their paths to the Super Bowl, and as we look at these offenses, both of them have been absolutely dynamic uh, this season. On the Cincinnati side of things, you have Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, and on the Rams side of things, you have Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup. But for Cincinnati, Jamar Chase, he has 1,734 receiving yards over his first 20 NFL games, which is more receiving yards than Terrell Owens, Devontae Adams, Antonio Brown, and Chad Johnson, Ocho Cinco, had in their first two seasons combined. Okay, T.O. had just over 1,600. Devontae Adams had just over 1,100. Antonio Brown, 1,435. And uh, Chad Johnson, 1,495. Those were their first two season totals. Jamar Chase has done that in just his very first season. He's got 1,700. So uh, he's already he's on a pace. Uh, I mean, obviously, he he was a Pro Bowl selection, didn't go, obviously, because he's playing in this game. But he, uh, man, what a what a talent he is, Jamar Chase. And everybody's looking, everybody that doubted Jamar Chase being taken fifth overall in the draft over the offensive tackle, Penae Sewell, uh, myself included in this group, uh, is looking pretty dumb. I mean, Cincinnati knew what they were doing, reuniting Chase with Burrow. And then on the Rams side of things, all Cooper Cup did this year was catch 145 passes for 1,947 yards and 16 touchdowns in the regular season. He came about 30 yards, or not even 30 yards, probably about 
uh, I think 18 yards shy of beating Calvin Johnson's all-time single-season receiving yards record. So, uh, and of course, in the playoffs here, he's added about 350 yards and another four touchdowns uh, so far in these playoff games. So he's he's rocking and rolling, just um, an unbelievable duo here for each team. But that brings us to our prediction, the official prediction. Now, if you look at this, uh, break it down by by groups, basically coaching, offense, defense. Okay, uh, coaching. Uh, you know, it's Sean McVay versus Zach Taylor. I certainly think the the Rams have the advantage there. Of course, McVay was just coaching the Rams in the Super Bowl four years ago. Uh, he's you know the youngest, one of the youngest coaches in the league. Uh, he's very progressive on offense, great mind, and Zach Taylor's done a fantastic job with the Bengals. Um, but he's not been here before. Um, he just to get his team to this point is very impressive, and I think, you know, they're they're both terrific coaches. But I think the Rams have the edge with McVay over Taylor. Now, on the offensive side of the football, both teams have explosive, dynamic offenses. Okay, we just kind of touched on that. Uh, you know, Joe Burrow versus Matthew Stafford. Uh, the way that Matthew Stafford's played in his in the playoffs this year. You know, I certainly wouldn't argue with you if you said he was the better quarterback. And then on the flip side, Joe Burrow, the way he's played all year and even continuing that in the playoffs, um, I would not be uh, shocked if you told me that Joe Burrow was the better quarterback at this particular moment. So uh, both quarterbacks are elite. I would say that's kind of a wash. Now, the skill position players, uh, running back, you know, I think the Bengals have the edge with Joe Mixon uh, over the Rams with some combination of Cam Akers and Sony Michelle. So I, I would th- like the Bengals there at the running back spot. Wide receiver position, uh, it's the Bengals again. Uh, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd as a collective group are better than uh, the Rams, Cooper Cup, Odell Beckham, and Van Jefferson. Uh, I just think, you know, the way that Chase has played, his explosive ability. And then T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd stepping up there, making big catches. Not to say that uh, the Rams, obviously, we know what Cooper Cup is. Cooper Cup's one of the best receivers in football, maybe the best, certainly the best this year. Um, You know, Odell Beckham's kind of taken a while to get fully involved into this offense. He's still a dynamic pass catcher. Uh, But I think Tyler Boyd's probably better than Van Jefferson at this point, so... You know, if you want to wash the first two, then uh, the tiebreaker is the third one. So I say the Bengals have the edge pass catchers. Now, the offensive line, uh, the Rams certainly have a better offensive line than the Bengals. Bengals' offensive line is just putrid. They gave up nine sacks against Tennessee. Uh, they're going to have to keep Burrow upright in this one. I trust the Rams' offensive line more so than I do the Bengals, so I'll give them the advantage there. Now on the defensive side of the football, this one is pretty much all Rams, okay? Defensive line, you know, the, the Bengals do have some some run stuffers and DJ Reader. They have decent pass rushers on the edge with Sam Hubbard and Trey Hendrickson, but you look at the Rams, you know, Aaron Donald, Von Miller, Leonard Floyd, there's just no way that, that the Bengals group is better than that. So, uh, the defensive front seven for the Rams is, is much better than that of the Bengals. Uh, linebackers, 
Uh, Logan Wilson's played really well for Cincinnati. He's very active, uh, led the team in interceptions this year. So, uh, you know, it's it's Von Miller and Leonard Floyd both kind of play that hybrid linebacker DN spot for the Rams. But again, uh, if we're talking totality, I think the Rams have the better front seven. And then the secondary between corners and safeties, um, certainly the Rams, right? Uh, Jalen Ramsey by himself is much better than anyone Cincinnati has in their secondary. Uh, the Bengals' safety, Jesse Bates, has played really well. Um, Eli Apple and Cheeto Beowuzie, they're, they're kind of average corners. You know, I wouldn't say either one of them is really good. They're both highly average. But uh, you get Jalen Ramsey on there as your shutdown, lockdown corner. He's already been asking uh, to cover Jamar Chase, which I assume he probably would, uh, just given the matchup. But uh, I think the Rams' secondary is better. Uh, Eric Weddle to uh, quarterback that safety uh, spot. And so give me the Rams on defense uh, all the way across the board for the advantage there. But really, this game is going to be won in the trenches. I just kind of mentioned it between the offensive line of Cincinnati and the defensive line of the Rams. The Rams are first in the NFL in pass rush win rate. They had 50 sacks this season, which was third in the NFL. And then on the flip side, Cincinnati's offensive line is 30th in pass block win rate. They allowed 55 sacks this year. So uh, the Bengals have a very porous offensive line, and the defensive line of the Rams is probably their best attribute uh, on defense. Now, uh, the Rams come into this game with much more pressure. They went all in, traded all their draft picks and capital, mortgaged the future for right now, and it paid off because they're in the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Okay, so the pressure's on Los Angeles to finish the job. The Bengals come in this with no expectations. They were not expected to probably even make the playoffs. Not only did they make the playoffs, they won the uh, the AFC North, and they steamrolled through the playoffs, okay? And here they are in the Super Bowl. Nobody thought they'd be here. They were 121 or 125 to 1 odds to make the Super Bowl. Nobody thought they'd be here. They have zero pressure, and they've been playing like that. Um, nobody seem, seems to think that they would have gotten past Tennessee. Nobody thought they'd get past Kansas City. And here they are. Nobody's expecting them to be there. Um, you know, I picked against Cincinnati in the uh, – I did pick Cincinnati to beat Tennessee. I did not pick them to beat Kansas City. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, you know I, I just – the Rams are at home uh, in the biggest game of, of their season. Um, they'll have probably more fans there than Cincinnati. And I trust the Rams' defense to show up more than I do the Bengals' offensive line. And I think that matchup between the Rams' D-line and the Bengals' O-line is really going to define the game. I think Aaron Donald, if he gets two or three sacks, this could be a long day for Cincinnati uh, because you still have to deal with Vaughn Miller. So uh, I am officially picking the Los Angeles Rams to win this game. Uh, the line currently, as I record this episode, is Los Angeles minus four and a half. So it would not surprise me if this game is won on a last second field goal by either team. And I would say I'm picking the Rams to win the Super Bowl, but I think Cincinnati is going to cover the spread. I think this would be a three point game 
uh, or Cincinnati might even win. Like I'm at this point, the way that the Bengals have played with the no pressure on them, I would not be surprised if Cincinnati won this game at all. Um, and frankly, I have half a mind to pick them for my official pick, but I'm going to stick with Los Angeles. Um, just I trust the veteran presence of Stafford, uh, Donald, Miller, you know, Rams. He's not been to a Super Bowl, but um, he's been in the league a while. So uh, I like the Los Angeles Rams to win Super Bowl 56. So uh, everybody in the country will be tuned in on Sunday. So I don't need to worry about you guys watching because I know you will be. So uh, we will talk about the Super Bowl in a recap on next week's episode. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League. And we're not going to do a standings update this episode uh, because play has just resumed following the All-Star break. We'll recap the uh, skills competition and the All-Star game here in just a minute. But originally, uh, the NHL had designated February 7th through February 22nd as a... uh, two-week Olympic break for the NHL players to participate in the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But since it was decided uh, that the NHL players were not going to participate, the NHL is using this break to make up the postponed games uh, that have been delayed or postponed due to COVID so far this season. There were a total of 98 of those games that were postponed. So in this two-week window, the NHL is making up 95 of those games. So almost all of them will be made up in this two-week window so they can still finish the season on schedule in that late April window. But this past weekend was the NHL All-Star Game, and uh, it was at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. Friday night was the skills competition, which was very cool. There were uh, about seven or eight different events, uh, seven events, actually, that took place during the skills competition. And... We'll just recap the winners. The NHL fastest skater was Jordan Cairo from the St. Louis Blues. He upset Connor McDavid, who had won it three times. Uh, so Jordan Cairo is your fastest skater. The save streak, uh, which is a goalie competition, players go in on breakaways, and the goalies from the divisions compete to see who had the most saves in a row. That was won by the Atlantic Division goaltenders, Andre Vasilevsky from the Tampa Bay Lightning and Jack Campbell from the Toronto Maple Leafs. So the uh, third competition that we saw was the hardest shot. Uh, That was won by Tampa Bay Lightning defenseman Victor Hedman. The breakaway challenge, uh, this is where NHL players have you know, they go in on breakaways. They usually have props and different things, but uh, the winner officially is Alex Petrangelo from the Vegas Golden Knights. But if you watched any of it, it most definitely should have been Trevor Zegers of the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, Petrangelo got some hometown votes. Uh, Trevor Zegers, the Anaheim Ducks, was blindfolded. He was wearing the uh, dodgeball movie uniform from Average Joe's Gym, and he just did... An amazing stick handling, got the puck on his blade and kind of flung it back and forth using one hand and ended up scoring on it. So his his was by far the best. Uh, Jack Hughes also had a good one where he brought uh, a little kid uh, out to help with that. But um, Petrangelo was the designated winner, even though it should have been Trevor Zegers. Then the accuracy shooting. Uh, the winner of that, you know, hitting the targets in the four corners of the net, that was Sebastian Ajo of the Carolina Hurricanes. 
Those were the five indoor events. Now, this year, the skills competition featured two outdoor events, which uh, took place. Uh, one of them was at the Fountains at the Bellagio, and the other one was on the Strip, Las Vegas Boulevard. The one that was in the Bellagio Fountains was the uh, Discover NHL Fountain Face-Off. That was basically uh, NHL players stood on a uh, floating... Uh, they had to travel by boat to get out to this little uh, platform that was in the water, and they had to shoot uh, pucks onto different targets that were floating. Uh, they were stationary targets, but they had to do it in a certain amount of time. The lowest time won. The winner of that competition was Zach Wierenski, the defenseman from the Columbus Blue Jackets. That was a very fun competition to watch. Uh, just pretty cool, neat little feature to see the guys outside, especially in the in the water at the Bellagio, that was a cool wrinkle that uh, only Vegas, of course, could pull off. And then the other outdoor competition was on the Strip, and that was called NHL 21 in 22. And basically what that was is it took place on the Strip, and there was a big wall of playing cards, a full deck of them, 52. And the NHL players had to, uh, while standing still, had to shoot pucks at the cards and to make a blackjack hand of 21. And there were several different rounds. You know, uh, lowest score got eliminated after each round, and you couldn't shoot at the same card more than once. And your winner in that one was Joe Pavelski of the Dallas Stars. He he basically got a blackjack uh, on every hand, and he it was pretty cool. He he was he was definitely uh, the most accurate there. Uh, looked really good doing that, and uh, so he. Joe Pavelski was your winner there. So those were your skills competition winners. And that moves us to the All-Star Game itself, which was on Saturday afternoon. Um, all in all, there were 19 first-time All-Stars that were out there, which has got to be up there with the most in an NHL All-Star Game. And the format for this, this was the sixth year in a row where um, the divisions faced off against each other. So basically there's four divisions in the NHL, you have the Atlantic and the Metropolitan in the East, in the Central and the Pacific in the Western Conference. And uh, each team had nine skaters and two goalies, and it was a three-on-three format. So each 20-minute period was broken up into two 10-minute periods, basically, to form one game. So each period was its own game. The first game featured the Metropolitan Division and the Pacific Division, the Metropolitan won that 6-4. to four. Uh, The goalies had to switch at the halfway point, the 10-minute mark. They had to play a different goalie. Um, but the winner of that game, the Metropolitan, moved over into the third period, which was the championship game. So the second period featured the Central Division and the Atlantic Division. And the Central Division came out on top 8-5 to five in that one. So that set up a championship third period game of the Metropolitan versus the Central. And in that, the Metropolitan Division beat the Central Division 5-3 to three to win the All-Star Game. Every uh, The members of the Metropolitan Division, as their prize, had to split $1 million uh, between all the players. And Philadelphia Flyers forward Claude Giroux was your All-Star Game MVP there. And he's currently in the midst of uh, some trade rumors. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he gets moved. But all in all, like I said, the, you know, the NHL All-Star game, unlike the Pro Bowl that we talked about, this is actually watchable. Uh, if, if you watch NHL during the regular season, the overtime is three-on-three. Three. It's fast. It's exciting. There's a lot of goals, uh, some good plays. 
And uh, so that's actually bearable to watch and, and competitive. And the players are actually trying in that uh, more so than the Pro Bowl. So that was fun to watch. And then the scene in Vegas, obviously, with the skills competition heading outdoors for a couple of events, uh, Vegas really pulled off a great weekend there uh, at the All-Star Game. And, uh, I mean, there's really no other better place to host an All-Star Game. Uh, you know, the Pro Bowl was at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas as well, so both of those took place on the same weekend. So I'm sure Vegas was popping. A lot of, lot of celebrity athletes out there over the weekend, and they did a, they did a good job, uh, you know, with both events. So, uh, But the All-Star Game, again, uh, very fun. Uh, regular season play has resumed, so we are getting back into the NHL games, and we'll do a standings update uh, next week. Uh, so that way more games have been played. But we'll move over to the National Basketball Association, do a standings update here in the NBA. Uh, most teams have played around 55 games or so, so we're uh, approaching the three-quarter mark of the season, and there's been quite a bit of movement in these standings in both conferences. We'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The Miami Heat are still up top at 35-20. and 20. Milwaukee Bucks are second at 35 and 21. They've got a four-game winning streak. The Chicago Bulls are third in the East at 34 and 21. Uh, they're still doing pretty well despite losing Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso. Fourth seed in the East, the Cleveland Cavaliers at 34 and 21. They're on a three-game winning streak. The fifth seed is the Philadelphia 76ers, 32 and 22. Uh, they're in the middle of some pretty heavy trade talks right now uh, involving James Harden. We'll see where that uh, ends up. The sixth seed in the East is the Toronto Raptors at 30-23. and 23. They're on a seven-game winning streak, so Toronto's playing some good basketball. So, too, are the Boston Celtics, who are currently the seventh seed in the East at 31-25. and 25. They're on a six-game winning streak, and they just put a thumping on the Brooklyn Nets the other night. Now, Brooklyn is currently the eighth seed in the East at 29-25. and 25. <clears throat> They've lost nine games in a row, and they are quickly sinking. Uh, they're not just taking on water. They are legit sinking. Uh, James Harden has basically requested a trade unofficially out of Brooklyn. Uh, Kevin Durant's still on the shelf for a few more weeks. So we'll see if Harden gets traded. Uh, Philadelphia would be probably the best suited team because they can deal Ben Simmons back to Brooklyn. So we'll see if that deal goes down. There's a lot of rumors going around right now that that is the possibility. But James Harden's missed the last few games with what most are believing to be a phantom hamstring injury. So keep an eye on that. But Brooklyn has lost nine in a row, and they are sinking. The ninth seed in the East, the Charlotte Hornets, are 28-28. They've lost six games in a row. So they're going the wrong way as well. And then the Atlanta Hawks are the 10th seed right now at 26 and 28. They're currently the final team in a in a playoff or play-in spot. And then the first team, uh, there's really only two other teams in the Eastern Conference that are going to have a chance to make the playoffs. It's the Washington Wizards at the 11th seed currently at 24 and 29. They got some bad news this week uh, when it was announced that their best player, Bradley Beal, is uh, having season-ending surgery on his left wrist. Uh, so that's going to be a big blow to the Wizards' uh, chances at making the playoffs, really. And then the other team in the East that has a chance, the 12-seed New York Knicks, 24-31. and 31. They've lost four in a row, though, so they're, they're heading in the wrong direction. Uh, the Pacers, the Magic, and the Pistons, I just do not see making the playoffs. So they are 
Uh, I'm not going to go over their place in the standings. Western Conference, uh, Phoenix Suns, they're 44-10. and 10. They're up top there in the West. They've won uh, nine out of their last ten. They had an 11-game winning streak, then lost a game, and now they've won three more in a row. So they're probably the best team in the league at the moment. Golden State Warriors are right behind them at 41-14. and 14. They've also won nine in a row. They're still doing so without Draymond Green. He's a couple weeks away uh, from his back injury being good to go, <clears throat> so he's still not playing. The third seed in the West, the Memphis Grizzlies. They're 38-18. and 18. Uh, John Morant just continues to impress every night. He had his ninth 30-point game of the year uh, the other night, which is just incredible. He's, uh, he's fun to watch. Utah Jazz are the fourth seed in the West at 34-21. and 21. They're on a four-game winning streak. Dallas Mavericks are the fifth seed at 32-23. and 23. Uh, They're on a three-game winning streak. Luka Doncic had his 45th career triple-double the other night, and he did so in just under 30 minutes of game time, which is insane. Uh, he has 45 career triple-doubles is the most by any player in NBA history before turning 23. And uh, he also has eight. Eight of his 45 career triple-doubles are... Th- 30-plus points, 10-plus rebounds, and 15-plus assists, which is second in that uh, all-time with those stats in a triple-double behind Oscar Robertson, who did that 22 times. So he's already a third of the way to Oscar Robinson in that, and he is not even 23 years old. So the kid is just unbelievable. We'll see if the Mavericks become a player at the trade deadline. Um yeah, they, they can make a push to be a, a top three team in the West if they can add some legitimate scoring depth behind Luka and Kristaps Porzingis. So we'll see how that goes. The sixth seed in the West, the Denver Nuggets at 30-24. and 24. Uh, The seventh seed, Minnesota Timberwolves at 29-26. and 26. Eighth seed, Los Angeles Clippers, 27-29. and 29. Uh, Now head coach Tyron Lue, uh, came out last week and said that he does not think Kawhi Leonard's going to play this year. Uh, he's recovering from that torn ACL, and um, he's hasn't played at all this year. And with the Clippers being where they're at, they're not really a championship contender this year. It looks like Kawhi's probably going to take the year off. And Paul George, uh, he is still awaiting his return. He's missed the last uh, 25 games, I believe, for the Clippers. So... He hasn't been back. Uh, getting him back is a, is a start to climbing back up the standings, but currently they're in eighth. The ninth seed is the Los Angeles Lakers. They're 26-30. and 30. They've only won three times in their last 10 games. And uh, Russell Westbrook has gotten benched twice now late in games, and then the other night uh, against um, Portland, he actually was a healthy scratch from the lineup. So there's some issues going on in Los Angeles. LeBron came out and said in an interview uh, this past week when asked about Milwaukee, he said that they're nowhere near the level of the Bucks, which is true. And so that does not make the Lakers a championship contender. They very well may find themselves out of the playoffs before it's all said and done at this rate uh, because the New Orleans Pelicans are the 10th seed at 22-32, and 32, just uh, three games behind the Lakers, and then four games behind the Lakers in the 11th spot the Portland Trailblazers at 22 and 34. Now they've only won twice in their last 10 games, but uh, they've also traded away CJ McCollum, which we'll get to here in a minute. So I don't know if Portland can make a run. So, but you know, based on that, uh, LA, the Lakers may still end up in the playoffs, but 
Sacramento's the 12 seed at 21 and 36. Uh, they're probably the last team. At, well, San Antonio. San Antonio Spurs, 20 and 35. So <clears throat> those are really the only teams that have a chance to make the playoffs in the West. The Thunder and the Rockets do not, so we will not cover them. But basically, like I said, most teams have played around 55, 56 games. Where uh, The trade deadline uh, is this, this week. It actually is today, Thursday, February 10th, which is uh, when I'm recording this. So uh, we'll see. I got a few trades to go over and around the island that have already gone down, a couple of big ones too. But uh, the James Harden-Philadelphia trade that seems like it might be imminent at this point so but uh, we'll we'll stay tuned on that either way but we'll move on to our segment called around the island and that's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports and it is a loaded one for you this week lots of news to get into from pretty much all four of the major pro sports we're going to start off in the national football league the coaching carousel has continued and actually has Become final, uh, the last remaining head coaching vacancies have been filled. Uh, the first one to get announced this past week was the Jacksonville Jaguars. They've hired Doug Peterson to be their new head coach. He's the former head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, where he spent five seasons there. He went 42-31-1, made three playoff appearances, and of course won that Super Bowl back in 2017. So uh, he is a uh, quarterback guru, so to speak, and that is exactly what they need there with Trevor Lawrence. So I, I believe that's definitely a much better hire than Urban Meyer. Uh, I believe it was about 59 days from when they fired Urban Meyer to when they hired Doug Peterson. So uh, we'll see how that ends up there in Jacksonville. The Miami Dolphins, they have found their new head coach. They've hired Mike McDaniel to be their lead man. Uh, McDaniel comes to them uh, from the San Francisco 49ers organization where he's spent the last several years as the offensive coordinator of the 49ers. And you can see that offense uh, the last couple years, this year in particularly, he knows how to get the best out of all of his players. Uh, just look what he did with Debo Samuel this past season. Uh, wide receiver turned into a hybrid running back and uh, Debo made the Pro Bowl and one of the most prolific players in the league. And I can see them doing the exact same thing with Jalen Waddell. Uh, they didn't use him as a deep threat like we thought they would last year. Um, uh, much more of a short yardage, high catch kind of guy. Uh, but I think Waddle can make a big jump in year two with McDaniel as the head coach. And then the uh, final, there's two more coaching head vacancies. Houston Texans, they've hired Lovey Smith to be their new head coach. Now, Lovey's most recently been, he, he served the last year as Houston's assistant coach and assistant head coach and since 2015 actually and he's previously coached the Chicago Bears from 2004 to 2012 and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from 2014 and 2015. He's 89 and 87 overall as a head coach just over 500 and he won the AP coach of the year award back in 2005. Kind of seems like a has-been coach but he has been successful at various times in his career. And the weird thing about Lovey Smith is he didn't he wasn't even uh, in contention for the coaching job. They had interviewed several other people, uh, Lovey Smith not being one of them until uh, former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores decided to file his lawsuit against the NFL uh, for basically claiming 
uh, racial inequality amongst the head coaching positions, which I'm not even going to get into that. That's a racial issue, and we don't talk about that here on Sports Island, but I certainly have my thoughts and opinions on that. Uh, if you know me, you want to reach out to me, I'd be more than happy to discuss that with you, but uh, I just I do not see why Lovey Smith is hired over some other candidates that were being considered, but um, he was the assistant head coach for the last six years there, so uh, I guess it, it does make a little bit of sense. And then the final head coaching vacancy to be fi- uh, to be hired was uh, New Orleans Saints. They've hired Dennis Allen to be their new head coach. He's been the defensive coordinator for the Saints the past several years. He actually served uh, as an interim head coach for one game last year when Sean Payton had to miss with COVID, and Tampa uh, New Orleans beat Tampa Bay in that game nine to nothing. So he's one and zero as a head coach, uh, and with the Saints, and he was also the head coach of the Oakland Raiders from 2012 to 2014, where he did not have much success. He went eight and 28 in those two seasons. So that means that we have all nine head coaching vacancies filled in the NFL. And just to bring you up to speed, the Chicago Bears hired Matt Eberflus. Denver Broncos hired Nathaniel Hackett. Miami Dolphins hired Mike McDaniel. New York Giants hired Brian Dable. Jacksonville Jaguars hired Doug Peterson. Las Vegas Raiders hired Josh McDaniels. Uh, Houston Texans hired Lovey Smith. And the New Orleans Saints hired Dennis Allen. Now, the Minnesota Vikings, they have an agreement in place with Kevin O'Connell, who's the Los Angeles Rams offensive coordinator. That is that is basically a done deal. He will be the new head coach of the Vikings. They just cannot announce it as official until after this weekend's Super Bowl. So, uh, But Kevin O'Connell will be the head coach of the Vikings, and so that is all nine head coaches. Now, a few interesting assistant coaches or coordinator positions that were hired. The Green Bay Packers, they hired uh, former – interim Vegas Raiders head coach Rich Rich Basaccia as their special teams coach. Of course, Basaccia uh, was the interim head coach of the Vegas Raiders this past season after John Gruden got fired, and he led them to a surprising playoff berth. Even though it was a first-round exit, he still coached the hell out of that team. So that'll be interesting there for Green Bay. Uh, The New York Giants, they've hired a new defensive coordinator, Wink Martindale, to be their new defensive coordinator. He, of course, got fired from Baltimore's defensive coordinator job just a few weeks ago. And then the Giants' uh, former head coach, Joe Judge, he's been hired by the New England Patriots as an offensive assistant. Now, he began his career, coaching career, that is, at at New England, so he returns home in a way. And after – I heard this on on ESPN radio, basically Judge going back – to coach under Belichick is is kind of coaching rehab, which I thought was a good way to describe it. After his abysmal two years in New York, he goes back to coach under Belichick, gets some more experience under his belt, and then uh, maybe regain another head coaching job at another uh, point in his coaching career. But there's some bizarre news out of the NFL, and it deals with Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray. Uh, there's been rumblings on social media this past week, uh, which have proven to to be correct, that Kyler Murray unfollowed the Arizona Cardinals on his Instagram and removed any and all pictures and videos of him wearing Cardinals uniform. So uh, multiple people have confirmed that. Uh, there's been no mention really um, on the airwaves, so to speak, about a possible feud between Kyler Murray and the Cardinals, um, but he wouldn't just do that for his health. 
he did it, you know, right after he was in the Pro Bowl, threw three touchdown passes in that Pro Bowl. Uh, Murray's eligible for a contract extension entering his fourth season, and they could also exercise the fifth-year option. So he's potential for two more years in Arizona. Uh, but that is getting uh, pretty interesting there, of course. Um, you know, don't really know if he's going to stay. He would probably demand some pretty high money. Um, I, I think he's he's worth it as a quarterback. He's, he's kind of a game-changer. And uh, I can see uh, Murray forcing his way out of Arizona. But, uh, you know, that's going to take a lot to get him out. And then the final piece of, well, there's two more pieces of NFL news. The first one, ESPN, uh, they announced that they've reached an agreement with Peyton and Eli Manning to extend the Monday Night Football Manning cast through the 2024 NFL season. So we at least get three more football seasons with uh, Peyton and Eli running the simulcast of the Monday Night Football games uh, with their guests. They're they're a hoot to watch. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're obviously knowledgeable about the game and provide realistic uh, breakdowns of plays, but uh, they also have a pretty good sense of humor. So that's uh, that's cool that they're doing that. And then the NFL final piece of news here: they announced this past week that they're going to play their first ever regular season game in Germany next year, this upcoming 2022 season. The game's going to be played in Munich, Germany, inside the FC Bayern Munich Stadium, which is host to the FC Bayern soccer team in Bundesliga. Uh, this this stadium is actually going to host uh, two NFL games over the next four years. So we got one this year and one in a couple years. And then uh, the NFL announced there's going to be two other games in Germany over the next few years that will be played in Frankfurt, Germany, inside Frankfurt Stadium. So that's pretty interesting. I know the NFL is trying to expand its international uh, realm. And uh, this upcoming season in 2022, in the fall, we're going to actually have five international NFL games uh, three of them are in London, like they usually uh, play in London. One of them will be in Mexico, and the other one, of course, like we just talked about, will be in Germany. So uh, the NFL is expanding its brand. Now, over in the NHL, the Anaheim Ducks, they've hired Pat Verbeek to be their new general manager. Uh, Pat Verbeek is a two-time Stanley Cup winner uh, as a player, and he's been serving as the assistant general manager of the Detroit Red Wings since 2019. And Verbeek is the sixth general manager in Anaheim Ducks history. Now, with that hiring, we've also had two head coaches that have been fired. The first one to get announced was Montreal Canadiens head coach. They fired Dominique Ducharme just seven months after signing him to a three-year contract. Uh, They've had an absolutely atrocious season. Uh, They've only won eight games so far out of their first 41, I believe, uh, it's just been absolutely horrible. Now, they also immediately hired Martin St. Louis to be their new head coach. So they fired Ducharme and hired Martin St. Louis. They also hired Vincent LeCavalier as their new assistant general manager. Now, if you recall, both St. Louis and LeCavalier, both French Canadian players, longtime Tampa Bay Lightning star players, they both won a Stanley Cup together in, in Tampa Bay, and they are now both in uh, coaching and front office jobs in Montreal. So um, interesting to see where that goes. Certainly can't get any worse than it has been for Montreal. And then the other head coaching fire, kind of more of a surprise, was Edmonton Oilers uh, head coach Dave Tippett has been fired. Now Tippett's been the head coach of Edmonton since 2019. 
He signed a three-year contract, so this was probably going to be his last year either way. Uh, Edmonton kind of had a rough rough month or two where they, they you know only won a couple of games in, a, in about a month's time frame. They've kind of gotten it back. Um, they're, uh, you know, uh, about five points out of a wild card spot as it sits now. So they're still in playoff contention. So the timing of this is very interesting. I don't know who they're going to hire to replace him. That's not been released. But um, either way, there's there's been some turmoil in Edmonton. Uh, but the NHL uh, announced their schedule for the 2023 events. The now keep in mind we're still on we're just about halfway through this NHL season but the the 2023 NHL All-Star game All-Star weekend will be in Sunrise Florida home of the Florida Panthers it's at uh, FLA Live Florida Live Arena that was actually supposed to be the host of this past year the 2021 All-Star game but they uh we did not have an All-Star game in that season due to COVID so um, Vegas was the host this year, as we just talked about a little while ago. So uh, Florida gets their crack after missing out last season. Now, the 2023 NHL Winter Classic, that is going to be hosted by the Boston Bruins at Fenway Park. It's the second appearance at Fenway, and it'll be the 15th annual Winter Classic. The 2023 NHL Stadium Series game is going to be co- uh, hosted by the Carolina Hurricanes at Carter-Finley Stadium, which is on the campus of North Carolina State. there in Raleigh, North Carolina. This was actually supposed to take place back in the 2021 season as well, but was canceled due to COVID. So much like the uh, All-Star Game in Florida, same thing. They're getting another crack at it here in the 2023 season. NHL also announced there's going to be four Global Series games next season. Two preseason games and two regular season games. The, the preseason games, there'll be one in Switzerland and one in Germany. In the regular season games, there'll be one in Finland and one in the Czech Republic. The teams, the dates, and the cities, specific cities for those international games, will be announced at a later date. Um, now, due to COVID, the NHL has not played a game outside of North America since 2019. Uh, the NHL has has done their global series games. I believe they played one in Sweden, one in Finland, perhaps a couple years ago, since 2019. But uh, again, much like the NFL, just trying to expand its brand. Now, the NHL has an absolute ton of players from Europe, whereas, of course, the NFL does not. So uh, the NHL's following in Europe is, is probably much stronger than that of the NFL. But uh, I can this makes much more sense for the NHL than it does the NFL. But uh, either way, NHL is going back outside of North America a couple times next season. And the final piece of NHL news deals with Boston Bruins goaltender Tuka Rask. He's announced his retirement after 15 years. And just a few episodes ago, we had talked about him signing a, a one-year contract with the Bruins to come back. Uh, he kind of did a brief AHL stint. Uh, he missed most of last year with the hip injury. He had surgery in July Tried to come back, but just is not right. Doesn't feel right. Didn't play well coming back. So he's just going ahead and going to go ahead and hang him up there after 15 years. Um, Major League Baseball. We are still in a lockout. Um, you know, we talked about the heated meeting that had occurred uh, last week. The two sides don't appear close to an agreement. Uh, ESPN reporter Jeff Passan. He. Uh, came out and said that a delayed start to spring training is imminent at this point. 
and that uh, the delayed start to the season obviously is, is probably going to happen just because uh, we haven't gotten anything figured out. And after that heated meeting, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred has requested a federal mediator to help resolve the lockout situation. Now, the MLBPA rejected Rob Manfred's efforts to use the mediator, but I don't know that that's their decision. So um, keep an eye on that. Uh, New York Mets pitcher Max Scherzer, he's kind of a, a vocal person there in Major League Baseball Players Association. He issued a statement saying that the MLBPA wants a system where threshold and penalties don't function as caps, thereby allowing younger players to realize their true market value. He went on to say that the MLBPA uh, wants to make service time manipulation a thing of the past, and they want to eliminate tanking as a winning strategy. So uh, those seem to be the three major hang-ups, I guess, at this point between the sides. Um, but, you know, that's that thing is getting kind of hairy. So we'll, I, I really want baseball to, to start on time. It doesn't look like it's going to happen, but... Hopefully we can at least get it either way. But in other MLB news, to piggyback off of our conversation last week about the Hall of Fame induction of David Ortiz and the snubs of Bonds, Sosa, Clements, and Schilling uh, due to their inability to get 70% of the votes uh, because of their affiliation with the PED usage, the MLB um, is actually is no longer testing for steroids. They they were testing for about 20 years, but that drug agreement expired back on December the 1st when the lockout started. So as of now, Major League Baseball is not testing for performance-enhancing drugs, which begs the question, why can't we get Bonds, Sosa, Clements, and Schilling into the Hall of Fame? You know, all of them, uh, I believe, were on their last ballot. So We'll have to see. You know, they all had Hall of Fame careers by themselves. And and if you're if you're sitting here telling me that David Ortiz got into the Hall of Fame without any PED usage, you're flat out nuts. Uh, he absolutely used PEDs. He was juicing. Um, he just didn't get caught, but he absolutely was. And um, so we'll we'll have to see on that. That might be a point of contention for Major League Baseball as well in this new agreement. Now uh, we. Prior to the lockout, we had talked about all the major free agent signings that had gone down before the lockout, but I'm just going to list off about 10 of the top available free agents that are still available for when the lockout ends and conversations can resume with teams. So the top players in the market still Carlos Correa, Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, Freddie Freeman, Clayton Kershaw, Carlos Rodon, Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, Anthony Rizzo, and Kenley Jansen. I would assume that all of those guys will find homes pretty quick once this lockout gets resolved. Moving over to the NBA. Last week, uh, we talked about the all-star starters from both conferences that uh, that were elected. But this week, the all-star reserves got announced. In the Eastern Conference, your reserves are James Harden, Jason Tatum, who's actually going to start in place for Kevin Durant, Zach Levine, Fred Van Vliet, Jimmy Butler, Chris Middleton, and Darius Garland. And in the Western Conference, the reserves are Luka Doncic, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, uh, Donovan Mitchell, Draymond Green, who's going to miss the game due to his injury, Carl Anthony Towns, and Rudy Gobert. Now, because Jason Tatum 
is starting for Kevin Durant, who's hurt. That reserve spot is going to go to LaMelo Ball of the Charlotte Hornets. And in the Western Conference, Draymond Green's absence from the reserves is going to put DeJounte Murray of the San Antonio Spurs in the game instead of Draymond Green. Now, the way that these all-star rosters are finalized is that we have the all-star draft, which takes place uh, later tonight, actually. So we'll go over the all-star rosters in their final setting uh, next week on that episode. But we've come to the uh, NBA trade deadline, which uh, is was Thursday, February 10th. And there has been a lot of trades to go down. Um, several big ones, which are the ones that we'll get into right now. The first trade to go down in the NBA before the trade deadline, the Los Angeles Clippers. They made a big trade. They traded Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, and Keon Johnson, as well as a draft pick to the Portland Trailblazers in exchange for Norman Powell and Robert Covington. Now, Covington's a good addition for that Clippers team. Uh, Probably not much of an impact this year without Kawhi Leonard playing. But if you can throw Covington in there with Kawhi and Paul George, they'll be looking pretty solid uh, next year. The Cleveland Cavaliers, they traded Ricky Rubio in a 2022 lottery-protected first-round pick, as well as two second-round picks to the Indiana Pacers in exchange for Karis LeVert. That's a huge trade for Cleveland. We just talked about them in the standings update a little while ago. They're currently fourth in the East. So getting Karis LeVert, uh, that's a huge get for them. That is going to pretty much solidify their position in that top five in the Eastern Conference, I think, especially with the way they've been playing this year. Uh, The next big trade that went down, this one was probably bigger than the other two, was the Portland Trailblazers. They traded all-star point guard C.J. McCollum, Larry Nance Jr. and Tony Snell to the New Orleans Pelicans in exchange for Josh Hart, Tomas Santoransky, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Didi Lozada. They also traded a protected first-round pick and two second-round picks. So the Pelicans gave up a whole ton of capital, both in the draft and on their team, to bring in C.J. McCollum, Larry Nance Jr., and Tony Snell. Now, obviously, McCollum is the prize piece in that uh, trade, but um, they can get Zion Williamson back uh, to go with Brandon Knight. Uh, that that's Brandon Knight and C.J. McCollum is going to be a uh, pretty formidable backcourt. Uh, the Indiana Pacers weren't done after they um, traded away Karis LeVert. The Pacers also traded away DeMontis Sabonis, Jeremy Lamb and Justin Holiday to the Sacramento Kings. Uh, now they got back Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, Tristan Thompson, and a 2027 second round pick. Now I like this trade for both teams. Uh, Sabonis is one of the better forwards in the in the league, and probably one of the most underrated forwards in the league. He's still pretty young. I think he's only 25. And, and then uh, so they give up him. But they get Tyrese Halliburton, who's one of the best young players in the league. I think this is his second year in the league. Uh, Had a really good rookie year. Probably the best, one of the best rookies last year for sure. And Buddy Heald can shoot. That's that's a good 
uh, scoring duo there, Halliburton and Heald. And then Tristan Thompson's kind of up there in age, not not the player he once was with Cleveland a while back. But uh, I think that was probably an even trade as far as talent goes. I don't think either but either team won or lost that trade. I think that was pretty even. Um, but Sabonis, you know, he's good for a double-double a night, it seems like. Probably not going to get that out of Halliburton or Heald, but their scoring should increase there for the Pacers, who are probably on the outskirts of the, the playoffs when it's all said and done. Now, my Dallas Mavericks, they made a trade. They traded away Kristaps Porzingis to the Washington Wizards in exchange for Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans. Now, Porzingis is always hurt. Uh, he'll play three games and then miss three games because he's always hurt. Uh, he didn't really seem to be too happy or comfortable here in Dallas. Uh, he was certainly not the sidekick to Luka that they thought he was when we acquired him. So uh, they're giving him up to Washington, who, of course, we just talked about. They lost Bradley Beal. So um, Porzingis, not that he's going to fill that scoring void, but uh, he should certainly help the Wizards stay in contention for a playoff spot. Now, Spencer Dinwiddie to the Mavs is, you know, he is a, a guard that handles the ball a lot. And we already have two of those in Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson. So I'm not sure what they're going to do with three ball-handling guards. Uh, now, Davies Bertans is a, you know, quick moving forward. Um, you know, he's He's, he's a good player. Uh, he's certainly not on the level of Kristaps Porzingis, but he's a stretch big, uh, Bertans is. So uh, I think, all in all, I think the Mavs did okay in this trade. Uh, they might move Luka. I don't see how you take him away from running the point. Brunson is a is a guard by just natural ability. So, uh, I mean, maybe you move, uh, you move Doncic over to the three, spot and you move you know you keep Dinwiddie and Brunson as your guards with Doncic as your three who knows what they're going to do but um, certainly uh, don't dislike the move I guess if that makes sense then the biggest trade well in terms of number of teams it was a four-team trade it went down it involved the Milwaukee Bucks the Los Angeles Clippers Sacramento Kings and the Detroit Pistons so you can see the Clippers and the Kings are been very active uh, and at the trade deadline. Here is who each team received in this four-team trade. The Milwaukee Bucks got Serge Ibaka. The Detroit Pistons got Marvin Bagley Jr. Uh, the Sacramento Kings got Dante DiVincenzo, Josh Jackson, and Trey Lyles. And the Clippers got Rodney Hood and Semi Ojale. So uh, this one is it's interesting for Milwaukee. It gives them uh, another big in the center. Uh, Ibaka's great on the boards. So uh, that's just, he's he's a good, that team's already loaded enough. So you throw Ibaka in with Brooks Lopez if they want to run a, a big lineup, and that's, that's pretty formidable, in addition to Giannis, obviously. The Pistons getting Bagley Jr. is pretty interesting because Bagley Jr. was the second overall pick just a few years ago. Hasn't quite developed the way he was thought to have Ben when they drafted him number two overall, the Kings, but uh, the Pistons now get him, and uh, the Pistons, if, if they can develop Bagley even more so uh, than, than what he's shown so far, that, that team's got a good group of young talent, along with Jeremy Grant and, uh, you know, some others, so that, that Pistons team, they're not good this year, probably not going to be great next year, but uh, moving towards the future, they have a pretty 
pretty solid lineup going on. Uh, and then the biggest trade of all, we were fine. We were waiting for it to happen. It's been talked about all week. I, I referenced it in the standings update between the Brooklyn Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers. And James Harden had pretty much had a phantom injury this last week that kept him out of the lineup. He seemed pretty disgruntled, pretty much all but demanded a trade from Brooklyn. He's only played one season there, one full season. And uh, that came to fruition because the Nets traded James Harden and Paul Millsap to the Philadelphia 76ers in exchange for Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round picks. So I love this trade for Philly. Uh, You get rid of Simmons, who was just dead weight, hadn't played at all this year. He was pissed off, didn't want to play for Philly. You bring in one of the most prolific scorers in the game in James Harden. And then Paul Millsap's been a good good uh, bench player for the Nets, and uh, he's capable of starting if he's needed. So um, I love that. And then on the Brooklyn side of things, I think they also come out on top too. I mean, you get you obviously lose Harden, but you get Ben Simmons, who actually fits better in Brooklyn because when you have Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, there's only so much scoring to go around. Simmons is more known for his good defensive play. Um good on the glass as well, very athletic defender. And then Seth Curry, he can put some points up, and then you get you know a seven-foot big in Andre Drummond. So And then you get two first-round picks on top of that. So Brooklyn certainly didn't lose in this trade. Um, but I think Philly uh, becomes the favorite to win the East. you got Joel Embiid, who's playing at MVP level right now. And if the season ended today, I'd have to think that he would win the NBA's MVP award to go along with James Harden. So I think... Philly's probably going to be your odds-on favorite to win the East after this trade, but Brooklyn uh, certainly did themselves uh, some good, too, by getting Simmons, Curry, and Drummond along with two first-round draft picks. So that was pretty even. Now, interesting note, I talked about that, um, uh, you know, the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden trio, okay? That was supposed to be like this masterpiece that would win them championship after championship. And in reality, between injuries and covid and all this other stuff that trio only played 16 games together as a unit for brooklyn and now they went 13 and 3 in those 16 games but that is highly disappointing considering what they had acquired they gave up the absolute biggest trade package i've ever seen to bring james harden to brooklyn and he wasn't even there for a full year and he played 16 games with Durant and Irving. So I thought that was very interesting. But the trade deadline in the NBA has passed officially uh, as of this recording. So uh, that is going to be how uh, the trade deadline shakes out. Those are the major trades. Uh, and that is going to wrap up the 63rd episode of this podcast. And, uh, man, we got a Super Bowl this weekend. Everybody in in the world is going to be tuned into that. So we'll have a recap of that on next week's episode. Uh, recap the PGA Tours Waste Management Phoenix Open. That's always fun. And then we'll uh, we'll take a look at uh, some NHL and NBA standings updates. But, yeah, it's going to be an exciting weekend there at the Super Bowl. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.